0: Well, good morning, Hickory Bible Church. It is good to see so many of you again over the past few years. It's been a delight for me to come out and be with you. I'm with my wife, Ginger. This time she came along. We left the kids back in California with my mom, so it was a win-win for all of us. We got some time away, and they got grandma for a few days. Um, And it's been a delight to serve uh, your college students. I'll tell you what. I I told the first hour, I'll tell you, It's a unique challenge as a preacher, I love to preach, but it's a unique challenge to preach at a ski retreat when, for the first session, everyone's like, can you hurry up, we want to go skiing, and then you're like, okay, so let's get through this first message, and then you come back after eight hours of skiing, and everybody's like, can you hurry up, we just want to go to bed, Um, so it was was a good time on the slopes, Uh, everyone got home safely, which was the number one thing, I guess. Um, we had a great time, so I'm glad to be with you tonight or this morning. Um, I'm still tired; you can see. So let's do this. Let's let's turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're, we're gonna we're gonna land at chapter 12. We're gonna spend a little time before that, walking through sort of the, the the situation that this message in chapter 12 finds us in in the book of Hebrews. But I'm gonna dial in on the final. Uh, in our final time, in the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. So I'll read those, and then we'll jump into it. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the very word of the living God to us. Let's pray and ask for his help once more. Father, help us as we open your word to have ears to hear and hearts to receive, and help us not to be like the one that James speaks of who, after hearing the word, immediately forgets it. Help us to be those who embrace the word, and Father, we're genuinely asking that you would transform us by it show us Christ. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start by uh, talking to you about goats this morning. Now, I have a question for you about goats. What makes a goat a goat? And sorry for those of you who are like southern farmers. I'm not talking about that kind of goat. I'm talking about G-O-A-T, that kind of GO, the greatest of all time, those who in their respective fields are classified as the greatest to ever do it, the Michael Jordans of the sports world, the Eric Churches of the music world. That split opinion in the first service, I just expected a resounding, yes, Eric Church, And it's hard to argue about how great a country singer is who's, like, from around here and whose last name is Church. (laughs) Come on, folks. But um, funny, not funny, it's a sad fact if you're related to him, uh, 10-time Grammy nominee. He's never won it. But I'll tell you who has won it, five times, Stephen Curtis Chapman. That's right. That's right. Not quite from North Carolina, but it's close. Tennessee kind of counts, and he's been here, so uh, we're... Curtis Chapman fans, someone who is considered based on what they've accomplished to be the greatest. And and here's what I want to tell you about GOATS this morning, Um, and it's a simple lesson, but it's this, it doesn't matter where they begin, what matters is where they end. We've all heard of one-hit wonders, we've all heard of the rookie who has a great breakout season and then he becomes, in North Carolina lingo, a what's-his-face. Uh, who was that? Who's the guy that sang that one? Um, but you, you don't remember because they, they fizzled out and they faded. Okay, well, how does that apply to this message? It's all about how you end. Because the Hebrews, the ones receiving this message, this book, were struggling to keep going. This book, which we have in letter form, actually came originally as a sermon. And so there's some really cool um, components and things to notice when you're reading through the book of Hebrews because it's very sermonic. It's actually a sermon that was written down and then sent to churches. And so 2,000 years ago, this book was essentially a manuscript that a preacher would have stood up and preached on a Sunday morning like this. And his audience were believers, the majority of them, having come from the Jewish faith and embraced the true Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. And with that embrace of Jesus came all sorts of persecution from the outside secular world as well as from within their own communities, alienation from temple life. Everything they had known growing up as faithful Jews was was pulled away from them as they chose to follow Jesus. Now, at the start of that journey with Jesus, things were exciting. You could read in Acts chapter 8. This is soon after Pentecost. Peter preaches a sermon. many of the hearers, Jewish, and they hear of Christ and they 're struck to the heart, and they immediately embrace him as their Messiah, three thousand in number, and the church kicks off with this this explosion on the scene and From then on, more and more people are being added and in Acts chapter eight it 's um, a fascinating passage because you see that immediately after Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is killed, persecution heats up. But that doesn't squelch the believers. It actually drives them to evangelize and go into the regions proclaiming the gospel. And there was an excitement. There was a bit of a buzz in the air. And how couldn't there be? This Jesus character himself had burst onto the scene doing miraculous things, healing the sick feeding the hungry, sitting with sinners and the poor, and yet when he stood to speak, confounded the religious leaders and the lawyers and Pharisees and scribes of his day. How often do we read that when Jesus preached, they stood in awe and wondered, what authority is this? Jesus was quite the character, quite the man. Uh, Most remarkably... His most remarkable miracle, some of you thought it was making wine at a wedding, was remarkable. But the most remarkable was when he prophesied his own death, was crucified, and then rose from the grave. So there was understandably this excitement about following this Jesus, this messianic figure. And so the ones to whom this book of Hebrews is being written and originally preached to were those who followed But as time passed, it got harder and harder to be a follower of the way. The luster began to wear. The initial excitement was gone. And having lost so much, temple life, family dynamics changed, customs and cultures rejected and scorned and looked down on, They start to be persecuted in Rome, not quite to the point of being put to death, but at times they're imprisoned, they're beaten, they're ridiculed. And Jesus had said he was coming back, but it's been decades now. Where is he? And life is hard. And so some began to doubt. They started to look back at their life in Judaism with the feasts and the festivals and the old priesthood. And began to think, maybe I made the wrong decision. Maybe I should leave Christ and return to my former life. Life was good before, and now it's hard. And so this sermon of this book of Hebrews is one that addresses doubt and denying the faith, even apostasy, which is leaving and abandoning Jesus. And I think it's a good question for that original audience to ask, as it should be for us to ask, when anyone stands behind a pulpit holding the Word of God, for you to ask, preacher, what have you got for me today? If this is the revelation of the Word of God speaking to us His creation What is God saying to me? And the preacher to the Hebrews has a message, and it's a very clear, simple, yet profound message, and it's this. You want the book of Hebrews in a concise statement? Jesus is better. He's better than anything that could possibly tempt you away from him. In their case, it was the former life in Judaism, a life that was filled with much good, Moses' a man of God sent to lead the Israelites, the Torah, the revelation of God for the people, the sacrificial system, and the priesthood, and the altar, all excellent things, but things that God had given for the purpose of pointing them to the ultimate, which is Christ, the fulfillment of all of those gifts. And so the preacher comes along and says, no, 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 don't abandon the the fulfillment for the shadow. Don't leave the, the Disneyland for the billboard pointing you there. Don't go back to the old when you have Christ. Jesus is better. Hang on to him. That's what this sermon is. And friends, it's a sermon that we need today. Because although your temptations might not be to return to a form of Old Covenant Judaism, you and I both are, have been, will be distracted by so much in this world. Tempted to leave, to abandon our first love, to grow cold in our pursuit of Jesus. And so it's a message that we need to heed today. Just a note on the pastor's approach as he preaches to these people, and then we're going to get into the text. But all throughout this book, the pastor is kind and compassionate. He's sympathetic to their struggle. And what I mean is this. He doesn't come to them and speak to them in a degrading way like, you fools, why would you be tempted to leave? Unfortunately, we can often speak that way. I I hear it a lot in youth ministry you foolish high school student? How could you possibly just come to church, do the right thing, stop being tempted with the world? The pastor doesn't take that approach. He, he sympathetically comes alongside and says, specifically with what they were struggling with, it, with Judaism, he, he says, yeah, I can see the allurement. I can see why it's difficult having been rejected by your family, losing your culture, and everything you've ever known. I get it. But let me just remind you, Christ is worth it. Another thing to note is that this preacher is encouraging them to persevere in the faith, and yet he's warning them what will happen if they don't, and it's deadly serious. For those who come close to Christ and see His majesty and beauty and then return to a life without Him, the warnings given in Hebrews chapter six, in Hebrews chapter 10 are severe and terrifying. And that's where I actually want us to start this morning. We'll look at Hebrews chapter 10 and he's just given them a warning about rejecting Christ. And he says in verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the, of the living God. Do not enter judgment clinging to the shadow of the sacrificial system having rejected the ultimate peace offering of Christ. But then look at what he says in verse 32 of chapter 10. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Those are stunning words, aren't they? He, a pastor who knew these people well, is reminding them of those early days when even when their property was being stolen and their bodies beaten, they accepted it with joy. Why? Because Christ is worth it. He's giving them that perspective that they had begun to lose. And I love what he says. He points out to them not only their own perspective about how they're enduring suffering for Christ's sake, but did you notice what he says? I think it's in verse 34. You had compassion on those in prison. So even as they were suffering, Who are they thinking about? Others. That is the supernatural grace of the Christian life. It's a life inexplicable apart from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. It's entirely unnatural for you to be abused and beaten and taken advantage of and robbed and cruelly treated and in the midst of that to be thinking how you can serve others. Goodness, we could stop there for a little bit of application, couldn't we? And a little bit of self-reflection. Some of you are in a season of prosperity and you're not thinking of serving others. Let us be convicted by the example of these Hebrews who in the midst of persecution were serving and caring for those in the church. And so what the preacher's doing is saying, can I just remind you of who you are of what you've endured. And so he says in verse 35, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then look at verse 39. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's looking them in the eye and saying, you're a Christian. You are not of those who abandon Christ. You are of the family of faith. Those who look to God and believe his word and hold on no matter what. That's who you are. I know it. I've seen it in your life. What an encouragement for someone in your life to come alongside of you in times of doubt and struggle and to say, no, 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 you're not thinking right. Can I just give you some perspective? I know you love Christ. I've seen it in your life, so keep going. That's what he's doing. So what he does next is fascinating. All of chapter 11, he reminds them of the family of which they're a part. We call it the Hall of Faith. Gen Z lingo, this is the Hall of the Goats, okay? This is those who've made it to the end. They've endured because they had faith. Now, I, I wanna just break faith down for you simply here. Faith is very simple. If you're wondering about the Christian faith, perhaps you're new, you're visiting. Or perhaps you've been raised in the church, but you you don't know if you're about that life. Faith is simple. Faith is trusting God. It's believing God. It's believing what he says based on who he is. So even though you don't see everything of which he says, you believe it because he said it. And you know who he is. It means believing God about who God is. He's the creator of the world, the, the righteous ruler. It, it's believing God about what he says about you, that you are created in his image to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him, and in that enjoyment of God and his creation to bring him glory. That's why you're here. You know that. This materialistic, nihilistic idea that you're here just for a few laughs, a bit of pleasure, and then you die, Friend, you were made for more than that. God has put you here to know the creator of the universe and in that knowing and enjoying of him to bring him glory and majesty by making his name famous. You have purpose, do you believe that? Well, faith also entails that you believe that you're you're a sinner who's rebelled against that purpose. And in that sinning, you have incurred the righteous indignation of this holy God. But it also entails believing that he has made a way for a rebellious sinner like you to be made right with this God and to be brought back into a delight-filled relationship with your creator through Jesus Christ who, who came and fulfilled the law that you've broken who bore the wrath, the punishment for breaking the law that you deserve. He bore it on the cross and then rose from the grave conquering death so that you could inherit eternal life. And though you die, you shall yet live forever in the new heavens and new earth with your creator where all sin and all death and brokenness and pain and darkness has been banished and you will in an Edenic paradise forever walk with your God. Do you believe that? Have you entrusted your soul to that reality? Or are you still choosing to believe your own intuition and follow your own feelings and follow follow your path? Friends, faith is simple. On the basis of who God is, do you believe his word? If you haven't, even this morning, I would urge you, consider Christ. Consider his word. And know that the only hope you have for entering into a relationship with a perfect, holy God is if you have a, a fitting sacrifice, one who has stood in your place and paid the debt you could never pay. And his name is Jesus. And he's offering himself to you today. Believe him. And that belief is intellectual. You must understand the words coming out of my mouth from Scripture. But the belief is more than intellectual. It's an entrustment of your soul. A crying out, Lord, if you don't save me, I cannot be saved. An abandonment of self-reliance, casting yourself on Christ for your salvation. Now, many of you in this room, you've already put your faith in Christ. You've trusted him. But life is hard, and it's filled with temptation and trial. So it was for all those that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11... They didn't see the promised land, but they believed God. And so through the midst of pain and persecution, they endured. And the preacher points us to them and says, look at Abel and Abraham and Rahab the prostitute and consider Jacob and Moses and Noah. Behold, this is your family. They've endured. And then in good preaching style, he turns from speaking in the third person about those who've gone before. And here in our text, in Hebrews 12, he begins speaking in the first and second person, which means he starts pointing fingers at you and me and says, therefore you, surrounded, look at verse 1, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. I just read to you in chapter 10, verse 39, Or is it verse 35, you have need of endurance. And then he just put on display all of those who've gone before and endured to the end. Those like Dwight Stone, whose video we just saw. A man in his mid-80s who, he's nearing the end of the race. He's run with Christ for decades. And look at what he's focused on. He's pursuing Christ, concerned with the gospel, going into the poor and the hurting and the vulnerable in Romania. He's not consumed with waxing his yacht and checking his 401K, and his eye is on the prize. and he, he can see it. and he's running. And the preacher says, "Look to them. You're surrounded by them, so therefore you and me, let's endure." And he gives three pieces of counsel on how to endure. That's why I'm calling this sermon the ABCs of endurance. Just so happens that each point begins with an A and then a B and then a C, okay? Hopefully it helps you remember it. If not, forget I mentioned it. So the ABCs of endurance, how will you endure to the end? And here's the reality. If you're hearing my words right now in this room, that means you haven't made it to the end. So how will you? Well, first, we learn that we are to abandon weights and sins. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. I love the the running metaphor, not because I love running, but because it's just a good metaphor. Because running is so hard and difficult, isn't it? There's twists and there's turns and there's things to, to impede you and obstacles in your way. Running is hard, and so it makes a perfect analogy for the Christian life, because like a runner, we must endure. And one of the realities about running is that weight is significant. That's why the original uh, Olympians would have run without clothing, so that they had no impediments to their running, nothing to weigh them and bog them down, and it's because um, a, a race, thinking of just a practical race now, is a matter of milliseconds, isn't it? A little funny story we have in our college ministry: uh, a, a, a woman who is an Olympic uh, gold medalist, two-time Olympic gold medalist in the 400-meter hurdle. Her name's Sydney M- McLaughlin-Lavroni, and um, when she first started coming to our church. Um, In the college ministry, she was sitting in the first couple rows, and uh, one of the the preachers got up to preach. Um, Our our pastor, Austin, was out for the week, and one of his illustrations was how he thinks track and field is a silly sport. And I was just sitting there squirming, going, okay, Um, real quick. And by the way, Sydney's husband is a former NFL player who's not small, and so I was just ready to get in between the two in case something happened. But but Sydney, um, I looked up some of her accomplishments. In 2019, at the World Athletic Championships, she came in second place behind Delilah Muhammad because she ran 52.23 seconds. That was second place. Um, so a couple of years later, at the Olympics in Tokyo, she beat Delilah, came in first place running 51.46. It was a world record and good enough for gold. Uh, In June 2021, a year later, she broke her own world record, running the 400-meter hurdle in 51.41 seconds, and then a month later, beat it again, running it at 50.68. Now, if you watch the video of her beating that world record, her own, for a third time, the commentator is very excited. And he's saying, she's gonna smash it, she's gonna smash the world record. And as excited as I am for our friend Sydney, I was thinking, smashed it? It went from 51.41 to 50.68. That's like this. (laughs) So not exactly my definition of smash it. I would have thought, like, she's 20 seconds ahead of everyone. But it's milliseconds. It's less than a second. And everything is judged on such a small scale because that's running. It requires you to shed anything that would hold you back. And so the preacher so vividly is giving us this illustration of the Christian life as a race. And he says, if you are going to run to win the race, you must lay aside anything that would encumber you. Shed it all. Now, sin is obvious. Lay aside those sins. I do think it needs to be mentioned because we can so easily give in to the lie of sin that, oh, it's just a little one. Nobody needs to know. And sin presents itself harmless, innocuous. My friend, if you are harboring sin in your closet, kill it. You don't make it to the end. It's just a little adultery, it's just a little lie, it's just a little cheating. It's just a little fudging of the truth. It's just a little abandonment of my, my duties. It's just a little... I, I saw recently online there was a woman who found in Russia, in the frozen tundra, a little kitten, and it was frozen, and it was almost dead. And you could barely see it. You would have stepped on it, and she finds it, and picks it up, it's still alive, and she brings it inside, and she nurtures it, and saves the kitten's life, Its mama had abandoned it. And over time, it grew as this black little kitten, and it was a black panther. And it grew up into this massive cat. And it ended up eating her. No, I'm kidding. It didn't eat her. (laughs) But, But to the point, so often our sin presents itself initially like that cute, oh, look at this little guy. And you nurture it, and you pet it, and when the preacher preaches about it, you go, oh, but this one won't bite. And it grows. And it deceives. So, so that's an obvious one. You want to win the race? Take off the Timberland boots and the hoodie. You're not going to win the race that way. Get rid of it. But what's not so obvious are the weights. Lay aside every weight. My pastor, uh, Pastor John MacArthur, says often it is something, speaking of weights, perfectly innocent and harmless. But it weighs us down, diverts our attention, saps our energy, dampens our enthusiasm for the things of God. And there are so many distractions threatening our enthusiasm for God, aren't there? And let me just say this. I want to call you to examine, to pray, Lord, search me and know me. Show me if there be any hurtful way in me A call to examine those areas in your life that are hindering you, that no one else will call out, because it's not an egregious sin, but it's something you know is hindering your passion. And let me just say something else. As you examine yourself, so often this verse is used merely uh, to apply to our quiet times, and I don't want distractions for those 20 minutes in the morning. That's why I put my phone on silent. Well, that's good, but the context of this sermon is not for those 20 minutes in the morning you read the Word. The context is they were abandoning the life of the church. They were abandoning the community of faith. Friends, what? are the good things that are keeping you from serving at Hickory Bible Church the way you need to be serving at Hickory Bible Church? What are the good things that may be hindering you from having a passion to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to see souls converted like Dwight Stone, saying God is a champion of the poor and the vulnerable, so why wouldn't, why wouldn't we make that the aim of our life? There are good things that will get in the way of you desiring to be involved in the church, pursuing Christ. And I leave that for the Spirit to to convict you, to to show you, pray that prayer, Lord, what is a weight that might be hindering me? The second advice he gives is to be patient. We see that in the word endurance. In verse 1, let us run with endurance. In verse 2, Jesus... For the joy set before him endured. Verse 3, consider him who endured. Endurance. Patience in the trial. a, a, A perseverance through the years. There's always that runner who shoots out the gate and then is quickly keeled over on the side. It's the tortoise and the hare, right? Excited to hear about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. And then as soon as the thorns of this world begin to crop up, it chokes him out. There's no endurance. But I'll say this just in the context as well. Speaking of those suffering Christians, isn't it true that in all the ingredients of any particular trial or difficult season in your life as a Christian, one of the most difficult to swallow is the ingredient of time? I remember as an athlete when we would do um, planks after any session where you have to hold yourself up on your elbows and your feet, and it's an abdomen workout. Uh, I, would, I would think to myself, I can do anything for a minute. And so you're in pain, you're tired, and they say 60 seconds go, and I can, do any, I can endure anything for a minute. And, and that's, that's typically true. You can endure a lot of sharp pain for a short time, but it's as the time draws on. And you hear the psalmist crying out, how long, O oh Lord, will you abandon me forever? It's as you're on your second decade with that medical diagnosis or the loneliness that seems so tangible. You could, you could cut the darkness of loneliness with scissors. It's, it's this overbearing weight pressing upon you year after year after year, that rejection from your family. That isn't getting better. It's not scabbing over and healing itself, but that, that wedge of Christ is driving between you and those you love. And, and it's either Christ or them. And you say, How long, O oh Lord, will will I endure this forever? And the trial goes on and on. And the preacher is saying, Be patient. You must endure. The reward is worth it. Remember, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. The third piece of counsel he gives begins in verse 2. And it's this, consider Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Run with endurance the race looking to Jesus, fixating your eyes on Jesus. And what do you see when you look at Jesus? You see the founder and perfecter of our faith. The one who founded our faith, the architect of our faith, the author, and the perfecter. The author here is pointing us to Jesus' time on earth. Throughout this sermon, the author points to the time Christ walked on earth. That's why he says in chapter 4, he's a sympathetic high priest who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin Look to the faith of Jesus as he endured what you're enduring times ten. And he trusted. His faith was perfect. And remember what I said a moment ago about faith is faith is very simple. It's believing God. I think of that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26 when Jesus praying to the Father as he stares down the double-barrel shotgun of the crucifixion just hours away. And he says, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. And then follows it up with perfect trust, perfect faith. But if not, may your will be done, not mine. You know that's faith. Every day is a battle of wills. Will you follow your will or his? Will you walk in faithful obedience to him or will you abandon trusting in him to follow yourself? And as we struggle, wavering in our faith, the preacher says, look to Christ. We see the founder and perfecter of faith. He endured the cross Look at the the second part of verse 2, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of the agony and the humiliation of the cross, the creator coming down to the created to be killed and crucified as a beggar and a criminal by the ones he made, and at that very moment, sustained the agony and the humiliation, and he looked as he was stripped naked in between two thieves, mocked by children as they walked by, abandoned by his friends and disciples in his hour of need. He looked at that shame and he despised it and said, I will not be ashamed by you, shame. I will not, be, I will not fold under your pressure as Pilate gives the orders and the soldiers mock and flail and cr- and and rip the skin off my back and my countrymen mock me and scream crucify, crucify and choose Barabbas in my place. I will not buckle under that pressure because the joy set before me is greater than anything I could walk through here. And so he entered the crucifixion. He was nailed to the cross. Why? Because he had a greater reward and he endured through it all. Friends, that is your Savior, the one who has gone before you. He was a man. He is a man. he took on flesh to endure what you endured in this broken and dark, sin-filled, sin-plagued world. And now, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. And he will return in glory to be worshipped because his name is a name above all other names. King of kings, the Lord of lords. And why is the preacher telling us this? Well, look at verse 3. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. He's telling us this to bolster, to stiffen your resolve. Christ did it. You can do it. He went before you so you would come after him. I want to tell you as we close here the story of a a, a woman who. Well, I'll give you the context. I I recently was recommended to uh, read a book called Everything Sad is Untrue by Daniel Nayeri. I I got the book and I started to read it. I was about halfway through and I kept thinking, who told me to get this book and what is the context of this book? You know, sometimes a friend will recommend a good book and say, hey, this is a great book on, and so you get it knowing what to expect. I, I forgot who had recommended it and why, so I just had this book. And I started to read it, and I was fascinated by it, but I couldn't figure it out. Is this a Christian author? Is this a Christian book? I I couldn't figure it out. But it was a really well-told story. It was a memoir of a young man who comes from Iran to Oklahoma around the age of five or six, and he writes the whole story from his perspective as a child, brilliantly written, entertaining, funny. And it's him struggling through life in Oklahoma. I don't know an Oklahoma accent, but that's my Oklahoma accent. And he's from Iran, so it's a a completely different world. And he's in middle school getting picked on, but he's getting picked on by kids. He's going, you're being so silly, why would you live life this way? Anyway, um, as I get more towards the middle of the book, he, he tells us why they came to America. And it's because his mother became a Christian. And he gives his mom's testimony. I just want to read it because it is the book of Hebrews. My mom was a Syed from the bloodline of the prophet Muhammad. In Iran, if you convert from Islam to Christianity or Judaism, it's a capital crime. That means if they find you guilty in religious court, they kill you. Um, my sister walked out of her room one morning and said she'd met Jesus. And, Here is the part that gets hard to believe. Seema, my mom, read about Jesus and became a Christian too. Not just a regular one who keeps it in their pocket. She fell in love. She wanted everybody to have what she had, to be free, to realize that in other religions you have rules and codes and obligations to follow, to earn good things. But all you had to do with Jesus was believe he was the one who died for you. And she believed. And when I tell the story in Oklahoma, this is the part where the grown-ups always interrupt me. They say, okay, but why did she convert? Because up to that point, I've told them about the house with the birds and the walls, all the villages my grandfather owned, all of the gold, my mom's own medical practice, all the amazing things she had that we don't have anymore because she became a Christian, all the money she gave up, so we're poor now. But I don't have an answer for them. How can you explain why you believe anything? I just say what my mom says when people ask her. She looks them in the eye with the begging hope that they'll hear her and she says, because it's true. Why else would she believe it? It's true and it's more valuable than seven million dollars in gold coins and thousands of acres of Persian countryside and 10 years of education to get a medical degree and all of your family and a home and the best cream puffs of Jolfa, and maybe even your life. My mom wouldn't have made the trade otherwise. If you believe it's true that there is a God and he wants you to believe in him and he has sent his son to die for you, then it has to take over your life. It has to be worth more than everything else because heaven's waiting on the other side. That or my mom is insane. There's no middle. You can't say it's a quirky thing she thinks sometimes because she went all the way with it. If it's not true, she made a giant mistake, but she doesn't think so. She had all that wealth, the love of all those people she helped in her clinic. They treated her like a queen. She was a Saeed, and she's poor now. People spit on her buses. She's a refugee in places that people hate refugees with a husband who hits harder than a second-degree black belt because he's a third degree black belt. And she'll tell you it's worth it. Jesus is better. It's true. We can keep talking about it, keep grinding our teeth on why my mom converted since it turned the fate of everybody in the story. It's why we're here hiding in Oklahoma. We can wonder and question and disagree. You can be certain she's dead wrong, but you can't make her agree with you. It's true. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Friends, what a testimony. But that's the hope of everyone who calls himself a Christian. If you have looked to Christ and seen his beauty and his majesty and his worth, then friend, you will endure whatever storms this life throws at you because you know there's a reward on the other side. And after all, we're not of the family who turns away and who abandons. We are of the family of faith, like Moses who looked on the riches of Egypt and the power of being Pharaoh's son and chose to suffer with the people of Christ because he He knew that the reward of following Christ was a greater one than the fleeting pleasure of sin. And so he endured. Friend, you are those who endure. So run this race. Abandon those sins. Confess them today, even as we come to the Lord's Supper. Confess those sins. Cry out, Spirit, show me What's hindering me? And looking to Jesus with patient endurance, consider him who's gone before you and follow in his steps. Let's pray. Father, please help us to look to Christ in simple trust, in simple faith, knowing that the reward to be had The possession of having our Savior is worth it all. In Christ's name I pray, amen.